I have to tell you guys right now that today's book is one of the weirdest ones on my shelf. I actually hesitated to buy it when I discovered it because I wasn't sure if it was too weird to have around. Uh, Of course, that meant I needed to have it. (laughs) Then, much to my surprise, I ended up reading it within a couple months, uh, which I rarely do. And oh my goodness, the cover did not lie or disappoint. Parents, this is your warning that this episode will cover some disturbing topics along with uh, discussions about sex and gore, Um, though I will try to keep it as light as I can. Just please listen to it before you share it with your kids. Good morning or afternoon or evening, ladies and germs, earthlings and aliens. Welcome all of you 21st century human earthlings tuning in today. This is the Fantaji podcast where we take a look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Is it too old? Is the cover too weird? Did you already see the movie? We'll find out. I'm your host, Erica Brickley, and I am absolutely in love with books. My favorite part is the discovery, which is why I intentionally organize my shelves by color to make finding things an adventure. All the books we cover during this podcast are from my personal collection. We're in for a wild ride today because this is the weird cover art episode and I picked a real doozy for the first cycle. <laughs> Remember that this on this podcast, we're starting out rotating four book types until further notice. Number one, Erica's Choice. Number two, a classic sci-fi or fantasy novel. Number three, covers that make you stop in your tracks. And number four, books in our favorite genres that are child-friendly. This is your warning that if you have kids with you, it might be best to go back to the never-ending story episode or wait until the next episode to come out because there is some disturbing stuff going on in today's book. As always, I'll do my best to take it easy, but parents should definitely listen to this episode on their own before deciding if it's appropriate. Spoiler alert, I really don't think it will be. (laughs) I don't want to spoil the story itself, uh, so I'm just going to put a big fat proceed with caution warning here at the beginning. There's nothing about assault or anything, uh, but it can be weird and uncomfortable nonetheless, like a nature documentary that you'd feel awkward watching with your parents. I'll also mention that I hope to improve my recording skills over time, so be patient with me while I learn. I am listening to past episodes and taking notes on how I can improve without pushing myself too hard to make every take absolutely perfect. Okay, without further ado, let's get into it. Today I have picked The Web of the Chosen by Jack L. Chalker. I have several series of his with awesome names and covers, uh, like the Rings of the Master and the Well of Souls series. Uh, though I haven't gotten around to reading them. This is a uh, Del Rey book published by Ballantine Books in 1978, illustrated by Ralph McWurry. Let's get right into observing the cover because that is what piqued my interest initially, plus it's going to take a while. (laughs) It really makes me question why artists choose particular scenes from books to illustrate, though I I guess you can't choose which muses move you. The setting for the scene depicted on the cover is clearly some sort of spaceship. Everything is gray or white, square, and covered in control panel boxes. Uh, There is a rectangular doorway leading away from the scene down a corridor uh, with other rectangular door frames that seem to be airlocks or spaceship segment entrances. Uh, Bizarrely, the floor of this spaceship is covered with green grass. All this, save the grass, is in complete contrast to the uh, colorful creatures that are inside this spaceship. Uh, There are three figures. 
One is a human with short black hair dressed in a blue coverall suit, uh, reminiscent of a Star Trek space uniform. They are laid out on the grassy floor, held down by white strands of something like a spider web. Sitting beside this human are two animals that really need to be studied closely. Sitting on its haunches, the animal closest to the human looks a lot like a donkey with bright blue fur, except that it has the face of a brown old man with long white whiskers. Uh, I mentioned that the face is brown because it is in contrast to the paleness of the human on the floor and in contrast to the extreme blue of of the other fur. Uh, However, it is a smallish face on a short head for a creature that looks so uh, equestrian. Uh, He still has the thin, tall donkey ears, uh, but he also has a set of curly horns that are topped by something like two tiny fans. Uh, Strangest of all are his eyes, which are two shiny charcoal orbs in his face. Uh, The third figure is another of these creatures, but but it's a full head shorter. Uh, This one has bright green fur, no whiskers, and smaller, less curly horns. Since its back is to us, there's also a hint of a bushy tail. I'm not sure I can express the magnitude of my reaction to this cover by simply explaining it to you guys, uh, but I tried to share it as best I could. Uh, And let's not forget the preview line. It says, Holiday was a star scout until he was caught in a far-from-human trap that offered no way out. It always amuses me when books mention the main character's name when it's an odd one like Holiday that takes a second to even register in your brain as a name. Like, I don't know, why put it on the cover? Anyway, I'm not sure what we've gained from this cover other than an explanation or (laughs) an expectation for blue and green face... I just, I can't even read my own script. It's so weird. (laughs) We now have an expectation for blue and green human-faced donkeys. Now, normally I wouldn't read you the back cover summary of a book, but today I think I might. This is one of those with a really strange juxtaposition between the cover's subject matter and the tone of the synopsis. Uh, So let's read it. Nobody beats Bar Holiday. He was paid to find terraformable worlds, new planets for his corporation to plunder, up until the day he came upon the peace victory, an abandoned generation ship hovering ominously above a definitely habitable planet he believed nobody ever could. Nobody beats Bar Holiday, because he was never satisfied with anything lower than first place, because he was always the oddball, in charge of his own welfare, his own destiny— A man determined to make his mark in the world and win all games at any cost. Nobody ever beats Bar Holiday, because he only took the wrong chances at the right times. But on the planet Patmos, where everything looked safe but nothing was, Bar Holiday had at last met his match. (laughs) It's hard to keep up that level of energy for something like that. Uh... It's just so funny to me that the on the back, like the parts that say nobody beats Bar Holiday are like in these big blue letters. So, yeah, just really, <laughs> it's just really proud of itself, I guess. <laughs> or, or I guess the point is that he's proud of himself, whoever this person is. Uh, let's move on to the author's bio for Jack L. Chalker. He was born in Norfolk, Virginia on December December 17th, 1944, but was raised and has spent most of his life in Baltimore, Maryland. He learned to read almost from the moment of entering school and 
uh, by working odd jobs, had amassed a large book collection by the time he was in junior high school, a collection now too large for containment in his present quarters. (laughs) Science fiction, history, and geography all fascinated him early on, interests which continue. Chalker joined the Washington Science Fiction Association in 1958 and began publishing an amateur SF journal, Mirage, in 1960. After high school, he decided to be a trial lawyer, but money problems and the lack of a firm caused him to switch to teaching. He holds uh, uh, BS degrees in history and English and an MLA from the Johns Hopkins University. He has been teaching history and geography in the Baltimore Public Schools since 1966. Additionally, out of the amateur journals, he founded a uh, publishing house, the Mirage Press Limited, uh, devoted to nonfiction and bibliographic works on science fiction and fantasy. This company has produced more than 20 books in the last eight years. His hobbies include working on science fiction convention committees, guest lecturing on SF to Uh, institutions like the Smithsonian, esoteric audio, and travel. He is an active conversationalist and national park supporter, and he has an intensive love for ferry boats, (laughs) with the avowed goal of riding every ferry in the world. He is single and still lives and works in Baltimore. Okay, you are all caught up, and it's time to find out what this book is actually about. Um, we'll go into some more details about some more things at the end, but for now, let's start reading. Uh, we're actually going to start with the prescript today because there's a little blurb here that comes before chapter one. There is an apocryphal story about the time when Mark Twain visited England and was introduced to George Bernard Shaw. Shaw was unsure about the folksy man of letters, but figured that anyone who sold as many books as Twain did must be intelligent and invited the American to... Uh, meeting of the Fabian Society. Twain listened to the speeches, mostly dull, about what sort of utopia these people dreamed of for masses considerably lower on the socioeconomic ladder than themselves. Finally, they asked for questions. This utopia you speak about, Twain is alleged to have muttered. What's it supposed to do? He was informed that in this wonderful world of the future, all men would share in the world's wealth, that no human being would ever want for food, clothing, or shelter. Twain was reportedly thoughtful. Sounds like a herd of cows after they shot the last wolf, he said at last. The Fabian reaction is said to have been too much to repeat in polite company. The incident probably didn't happen, but it should have. Chapter 1 Bar Holiday's job is to go out into the universe and search for planets that can be adapted for human needs. While out there, he comes across a ghost, which is a nickname for abandoned ships. This one happens to be a large colony ship from the 21st century. Quote, Before Igor Kutsmanitov discovered how to bend space right around the laws of relativity. Unquote. These ships were often inhabited by members of a political or religious group searching for an Earth-like planet to colonize. It seems like this one succeeded, but it's floating near a, 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 because it's floating near a comfortable planet orbiting a yellow sun. Holiday isn't thrilled at this discovery because his computer estimates that the ship has only been there about 15 or 20 years, so this planet is probably already taken and newly inhabited by defrosted humans. Even a big company like Sieglin Corporation doesn't want to mess around with religious colonists. There won't be any finder's fee, but he might get reprimanded for not investigating fully. So Holiday follows the manual. He starts by trying to make radio contact with the colony ship. No answer. Next, he boards it to do a thorough check, 
even though it's the size of a city. But it's completely abandoned and cleared out. The ship is called the Peace Victory from the year 2163. A commemorative plaque says, Peace Victory brings the communards to the place where they might found the society all mankind justly craves but cannot find under the fascist governments of Earth, no longer home. From this spot began the fulfillment of mankind. Holiday reads this and presumes the communists were some sort of community-centric group society focused on mutual cooperation, though he doesn't really care that much. He makes his way back to the airlock, but discovers that someone scratched a single word onto the door. Don't. Chapter 2 Holiday is a scout because he loves to fly spacecrafts and see things no one else has, even though it's a lonely profession. More than that, however, it is the fact that he gets bored at home, in a future where people live to be 300 years old and don't really have to work unless they want to, Holiday can't stand to have a job pushing buttons for a corporation. All his advantages, handsome, athletic, good with the ladies, couldn't keep him from being competitive in a society not built for that. Now Holiday goes out and is the first person to discover new worlds. If humans have become like vegetables grown by companies like Sigling Corporation, he thinks of himself as a special vegetable with old-fashioned ideas about building one's own self-worth. So, Holiday is annoyed that a planet that seems to already have been colonized is also the best prospect he's ever found. Still, he's unsettled by the word don't scrawled in the big ship and plans to do a complete survey of the planet anyway. He sends a probe down for some pictures. The planet... Uh, the planet he can't take credit for has oceans, continents, plains, rivers, lakes, forests, mountains. The climate is much warmer than Earth's, judging by the smaller uh, polar ice caps. A deep scan reveals a lot of uh, resources underground. It really seems like a land of milk and honey. However, there are strange animals living on the savanna. So strange that Holiday just stares at the image for a while. He notes that no intelligent life besides humans has ever been discovered, and animal life on other planets tends to follow similar trends to that of Earth's. But these creatures are really weird. Here's the description. Their heads were overlarge, but somewhat humanoid, although rough-hewn. Long, thick whiskers, like a cat's, drooped down almost to the ground. Their ears? Well, I'd seen donkeys in zoos, and that's about the closest I can come huge, long, almost a meter high, and they seem to be able to turn them in independently over at least a 90 degree range. Two horns, fairly long, rose out of their heads above the eyes, terminating in flat membranes, uh, purpose unknown. The male's horns were grand, they curved around once before straightening up again. The females were straight and slightly shorter. And those eyes, weird, jet black. No, I don't mean the pupils. The big eyes were like obsidian, from lid to lid. Their bodies were equally incongruous. Again, I have to go back to earth animals I've seen in zoos and picture books. The body was like a giant kangaroo's, complete with massive hind legs, which ended not in big feet, but in large hooves, like horses' hooves. Their forelimbs were very long, since their bodies put them at an angle, but very horse-like. And all of this ended in a large, flat, bushy tail, like a squirrel's, proportional to those bodies, and fluffy, and fully as long. Holiday looks at the other animals on the planet. They also seem a bit odd, but not as strange as the, quote, chief creatures of the plains, unquote. 
He runs checks on the air quality and microorganisms, which are all safe for him to breathe, so humans can survive here, but he's found no sign of them. Eventually, Holiday identifies the spot where their shuttle must have touched down, but still, there are no humans. The word don't flashes through his mind, but Holiday can't deny that he loves a challenge and chooses not to return back in range of civilization to ask for help. He sends down a different probe to further test the planet's microorganisms. Only one stands out as perhaps being able to affect a creature from another world. It multiplies quickly, but goes dormant just as fast without having any effect on the biochemical test organism. Holiday wonders if the colonists did the same tests, thinking everything was safe, only to disappear. His gut tells him to leave, but there's something about those impossible herbivores he can't quite put his finger on, but his stubborn nature urges him forward. Suiting up and bringing lots of oxygen, Holiday lands near where the colonists' shuttle touched down, though it's not there. He does so while the herbivores are elsewhere, since their muscular legs look like they could break bones. Stepping outside, he notices that the grass that the weird-looking creatures eat is very hard and sharp, and there are tubers at the base of some of the blades, tough as a potato or an apple. When the creatures wander over to see him, they just watch, and Holiday feels very watched by those humanoid faces. While the creatures follow at a distance, Holiday puts off confronting them. He observes other animals that wander the plains. Tiny mules, semi-aquatic squirrels, tall rabbits, pig-like things, lizard-like birds, and lots of insects. He's disturbed by how quiet everything is. Is this a game preserve? If so, who's running it? Then again, the village of the herbivores is exactly where he would start a colony if he landed here. At the point where two rivers meet, there is a main street and huts of various sizes, even ones with spires. The buildings are made from some sort of silvery webbing. It all points to intelligence, but the creature's lack of manipulatory digits speaks to the opposite. How could they evolve like this? There's nothing for them to struggle against, nothing to outthink, when they're the biggest thing here. Suddenly, Holiday understands. These are creatures made up of earth animals. Four legs of a mule, pouch and hind legs of a marsupial, spiderweb, etc. This is all one big experiment. And the worst part, the colonists were one of the earth animals used in it. The herbivores are the missing colonists. Holiday tries not to panic. He reminds himself there are these weird herbivores all over the planet. Way too many populating the planet for one group of colonists to do in a single generation. Deciding he can't do anything without the final piece of the puzzle, Holiday heads back to his ship, only to discover that the herbivores have covered it in a hard white cocoon. It's hard as a rock. It burns a little when he shoots at it with a pistol, but before Holiday can get a hole made, the pistol stops working. Somehow, it's out of charge already. On top of that, the plastic is corroding as he stares at it. The same is true of Holiday's computer when he gets it out of his backpack, and soon his air filtration system starts to fail the same way. Terrified, Holiday pounds on the dome around his ship as his gloves and suit disintegrate, utterly defeated. Quote, Nobody had ever beaten Bar Holiday before. Unquote. Chapter 3 Within an hour, Holiday is naked. He's hungry, but can't eat the grass. He considers offing himself, but is too proud. Finally, he settles on chewing grass tubers. They taste good, like a pear or an apple, and suddenly Holiday is devouring them one after another. 
When his huge hunger is briefly satisfied, it occurs to him that this is the start of his transformation into one of those weird herbivores, presumably via something his ship's scanners didn't pick up. Holiday is more annoyed with his own reliance on technology than anything. Many herbivores gather around Holiday as he goes through starvation spells, stuffing himself with tubers. Before he can try and make contact with them, he passes out. He wakes up later to thunder and rain. Holiday looks for shelter, glad he didn't wake up as a monster, but really needing to have a bowel movement. After that, and the storm, the humidity returns to what it was before, and he heads toward the village, but falls into another feeding frenzy. This time he eats grass as well as tubers, then again falls asleep. Holiday is annoyed that he can't do anything while this is happening, but resigns himself to it, though it bothers him that the herbivores, his fellow transformed people, have left him alone since his first eating and sleeping cycle. Now he's growing greenish-blue fur on his skin, which is getting tougher and darker. His mouth is broader, his teeth are bigger, his tongue is large with a flap at the tip. As he makes note of all the changes, Holiday feels sorry for the colonists, who had to watch their possessions disintegrate and their bodies change without any of the special qualities that make Holiday a scout, such as his extreme adaptability. Wondering who is behind all this, he eats and sleeps some more, waking up to thick, muscular limbs and the beginnings of hooves. His back legs move together, like a kangaroo's, so he has to drag himself along. Holiday wonders if the speed of this transformation is caused by some bizarre version of a cancer or other mutating agent. It all seems very efficient. The blueprint of what he will become is all laid out. Holiday wakes up again, though it's too dark to see out. He can tell that his front hooves are segmented into three sections, so he could grip something small if he wanted to. He tries out jumping using his powerful hind legs and has to practice to keep himself from hurting himself from the power of it. Then he hears voices. Holiday's big ears can finally detect all the sounds of this world that his human ears couldn't. Was it all too high-pitched before? Holiday eats and sleeps, again wakes up in darkness. His blood run cold as he realizes he might be blind. At the same time, he's overwhelmed with sound and thin, reedy, high-pitched voices. He tries to think through his assets, like his bushy tail that's perfect for swatting flies, and his horns. Looking forward to the final cycle, he ignores his blindness and practices jumping, uh, jump walking, and standing. He gets hungry, he eats, he gets sleepy, he rests. Chapter 4 Someone wakes Holiday up, encouraging him to get up and start getting used to his new body. He opens his eyes to this. What I saw was like a kaleidoscope, only infinitely more complex, and without clear borders. Some colors flashed and whirled and spun, some stayed put, and there were more shades and hues than I could imagine, a few so odd-looking that I could never have imagined them before. What I saw was a series of fuzzy impressions, though without a form or shape. His companion assures him this type of vision is better than what he had, teaching him to use his horns, horns to help focus. The result is an almost electronic level of awareness of his surroundings. Membranes on top of the horns, those little fans he remembers seeing, act as a sort of sonar, supported by his powerful hearing and color-sensitive eyes. Anything within range of his sonar, Holiday can see and understand in great detail. Oddly, colors don't necessarily line up with the light wave they reflect, corresponding instead with Holiday's physical needs. He asks why the grass looks pink now, and his companion says, That's a food color. 
Blue is a male color, green is a female one. This bothers Holiday because he doesn't like to have everything laid out for him, preordained. Distracting himself with knowledge, Holiday asks different questions. His companion and guide is a man named George Hapsenal, part of the Communard community colonists and a social leader in this new, confusing order of life. There was no way to warn him about what would happen since the process of corrosion, then physical transformation, starts immediately and Holiday wouldn't be able to hear the high-pitched voices of the herbivore people until he was one of them anyway. The Communards call this planet Patmos, a Bible name, and left civilization to live by religious principles and communist ideals. They sought a life of prosperity and equality for all. Once they were trapped on Patmos, many of the colonists thought that this transformation into peaceful creatures with bountiful food fulfilled all their goals, and many are happy like this. Holiday isn't impressed, not one to live like a cow in a herd, which is in, which is the aspect of civilization that caused him to leave and become a scout. George isn't bothered by this opinion, since there's nothing either of them can do about it one way or the other. He comments that it's impossible to escape, even through voluntary death, because they will prevent it with an instant lobotomy. When Holiday questions who they are, George changes the subject for the time being, encouraging his new friend to practice jump running. They tour the village, and Holiday notes that the building with the spires looks like an ancient church, because these people came from ancient times, compared to him, having spent 470 years asleep before arriving here. To them, Holiday is the alien. George goes on to explain that this village would have held the original 600 colonists, but now there are nearly a billion people. They call themselves the Chosen, with a Z, on Patmos, and they had to spread out over the last 20 years. Holiday can't believe how this is possible. George explains that there are uh, many more females than males, and once every two years they mate and each female lays six eggs. Those eggs hatch and the children mature within two years and also mate to have their own six children. So the population increases dramatically every couple rotations around the sun. The biggest issue with this is that the planet won't hold everyone for much longer. If there are about three billion chosen right now, the next cycle will produce a staggering 15 billion. They'll run out of food in no time. George agrees, pointing out that the death rate is also quite low because there's nothing here to hurt them. Holiday warns that a world of starving people might send them all back to the Stone Age of violence that they came here to escape. Chapter 5 Holiday gets used to being a Chosen. It's like being a child again with no cares or responsibilities. He watches the children grow up quickly. Though they follow their elders' tra traditions, uh, for almost every single person on the planet, this is the only life and home they've ever known. Most of them live primitive lives with no link to humanity as a concept, and there are too many children to group them by generations, so everyone simply exists together. Holiday can already see the Chosen becoming a fully alien race within a hundred years, reduced to violence and the fight for survival once starvation sets in. They play games like tag and hide-and-seek. Holiday spends time with George's recent children, like a young female female named Goose, with all the enthusiasm he would have expected out of a 12-year-old. Everyone eats together, grooms each other, and chats. Goose asks Holiday what it's like being old people, or the original human shape. She wants to know if being able to grip and hold things with hands made being humanoid better than being chose. But Holiday isn't sure, since he feels that most humans in space are as complacent as the ones here on the plains eating grass. At night, 
the chosen uh, the chosen's unique vision works less well, so everyone goes inside where they won't trip themselves. When the children are asleep, Holiday and George sit together in the comfortable darkness. George spends his days trying to teach the youth, but it's a lost cause. He sees that the three children he currently cares for are simple-minded, unable to count past five, and they'll go on to teach their children even less. He's painfully aware that Holiday is right, that the humans of Patmos are turning into simple cattle that will cannibalize themselves when they run out of food for the billions upon billions of mouths. Breeding season is getting close, possibly the last one before the planet is overrun and the end begins. Holiday pushes George to tell him who they are, and the older man finally agrees. He asks about the tests Holiday ran aboard his ship, the microorganism that multiplied quickly but seemed harmless. That tiny virus ended up mutating all the colonists once they landed. A few people did escape in the shuttle, but weren't able to survive up in space without the provisions that had already been shipped down to the planet, so they returned. After that, the shuttle corroded and crumbled like everything else. George doesn't know who caused this, but clearly thought was put into it, and Holiday has noticed. They are herbivores, so food resources are easily managed. They have no hands to make anything or threaten the ecosystem. Tough skin for sun protection, and stamina for traveling and spreading out as they multiply. Their vision tells them how to live, what to eat, what to drink, who to mate with. What Holiday is most bothered by is the fact that a creator so detail-oriented can't seem to count. Doesn't the virus know that this carefully cultivated planet can't hold any more people? Will people start dying, or will the birth stop? Strangest of all, why were the Chosen left with their intelligence? Why not make them mindless herd beasts, organic robots? Why were humans used in this crazy experiment at all? What are George and Holiday not seeing? Chapter 6 At age 36, Holiday relearns how to be a person. It reminds him of becoming a pilot, which requires communicating with the ship using mental controls. At first it's awkward and strange, but soon it becomes second nature. Now Holiday can appreciate the beauty of the Chosen, where once he saw only silliness and weirdness. He's one of them now, and the threat of mass starvation weighs on him more heavily than the loss of his original form. Holiday goes on a trip to see more of Patmos. He finds areas away from the plains where less crazy grass grows, <laughs> where less crazy grass grows, possibly what the planet looked like before the virus took hold. This is especially true up north. The virus seems to dislike the cold, as to the, uh, as do the chosen and the grass they eat. Venturing to these places causes Holiday extreme discomfort, as if the virus inside him insists he return to warmer weather and food, but he hates imposed rules. That's what he hated about Sigling Corporation when he worked for them. Holiday presses forward, mind over matter. He refuses to be the virus's property. The first village Holiday finds over the chilly hills is full of people who speak complete gibberish. He searches for a first, capital F, someone who arrived along with George and the others. He finds a female named Mara, who is a second, capital S, someone who was born during the first breeding cycle after the colonists arrived and was taught extensively. Though Holiday feels sad for her that she's never seen the stars since the Chos can't see beyond what their sonar hits, it's a relief to meet someone nearly as close to his own culture as George's. Mara already heard about Holiday through the grapevine, and is eager to hear about life beyond Patmos, though it's like explaining the intricacies of music to a deaf person who can only feel the rhythm. 
Though adventurous at heart, Mara is bored, locked in a cycle with the rest of the Chosen by the incessant breeding cycle. It's impossible to teach children everything there is to know in the two years between births. It turns out that Mara is George's daughter, but she hesitates to visit him, despite living close by. I need to pause here and give a bit of a trigger warning. Uh, This book is about a group of people who live in an alien way that is sometimes disturbing to humans like us or Holiday. Take, for example, the way the Chosen live like animals when humans pride themselves on being much more than that. So, there are some other animalistic habits they have that I'm going to touch on, and I don't want any of my listeners to feel unnecessarily uncomfortable. I'd recommend skipping ahead a little little bit if you don't want to hear anything at all about the topic of incest. (laughs) Again, I'll be as delicate as I can, and it's an alien culture and all that. Uh, I just wanted to say it. Okay, back to the story. Mara explains that it is impossible to resist the drive to mate when the breeding season comes around, even if you are related to the people nearby. For herbivores like the Chosen, this is normal and natural, but for the religious colonists who came to Patmos unprepared, it can be quite traumatizing. Even though the mutating virus removes any dangers caused by inbreeding, the emotional scars are still there. Determined to mend the wounds inflicted by things out of their control, Holiday convinces Mara to return with him to see George, even though the breeding season is closing in. Before they set out, he dreams of seeing, of trying to escape his fate and wakes up to find he's spun his first saliva web, building a tiny wall. The web dissolves in urine, so it's easy to get rid of. This gets Holiday thinking about what he will need to do to take off in his ship, since it's currently cocooned in webbing. It runs on mental commands, so he doesn't need hands to take off. Chapter 7 Holiday is bothered by the idea of mating because it's yet another thing the virus controls. Outside of the breeding season, men and women live side by side as equals in Cho's society. Then suddenly every two years they get this urge they can't fight, like other animals that go into heat. He and Mara perform the mating ritual before they reach the village. The hypnotic process takes a full ten days most of which they spend inside a web hut that they wove together. At the end of it, Mara lays three eggs. Two are kept in her marsupial pouch, and one goes in holidays. Their three segmented hooves are perfectly shaped for picking up eggs. Afterwards, they finally sleep. Chapter 8 Coming out of the mating trance leaves Holiday exhausted. Mara, for whom this is all quite routine, explains that females only go into heat every two years, but males mate as often as necessary, so he should prepare himself for that. She also says that Holiday gets to carry an egg because its sex will be determined by the parent whose pouch it hatches in, so he will, be, uh, he will essentially give birth to a boy. Holiday feels physically and mentally ill. He hates being told what to do, having no choice in the matter. There is no love, no romance, no end to loneliness. Bitter, he decides he must get off this planet where thinking is unnecessary, even if the humans of the stars aren't much better. Mara is compassionate, knowing that her own adventurous spirit makes her a bit of an outsider, and the colonists, like her father George, left their home in search of greater things for the same reasons. As they contemplate the mysteries of this world, Mara comments that this was the first time she ever had only three eggs instead of six. This confirms to Holiday that the powers that be understand the population is getting too big and really gets him thinking. It's bothered him all along that the Chosen are so specialized while the rest of the animals seem to be pretty normal, without crazy cycles or eyes or anything weird. 
He concludes that the virus, whatever it is, did not originate on Patmos. It must have arrived along with the human colonists, somehow. He looks forward to talking to George about this idea. Never having experienced the change as Holiday did, Mara doesn't really get what he's excited about. But this experience has meant a lot to her. A break from responsibility and Holiday's stories have been more fun for her than anything else she's had in life. It takes a while to convince her to keep walking, though. They arrive in the village and find George alone under a riverside tree, recovering emotionally after the breed. The Chos can read each other's aura through their sonar pulses, and the older man is in low spirits, though he brightens when he sees Holiday again. While Mara hangs back, Holiday immediately explains his theory that the current virus evolved from one of the colonists, uh, from, from a virus that the colonists brought with them, even if it seems unrelated in terms of symptoms. The only one they ever had was an intestinal bug. However, George confirms that it was wiped out, so that's impossible. Then again, that old spaceship was somewhat self-aware, even hundreds of years ago, and Holiday has a new hypothesis that he's not quite ready to share. He brings Mara over and leaves the father and daughter to their reconciliation, his mission over. Holiday wanders back to the silver mound that is his ship. To figure out what is happening on Patmos, he needs to get back to his ship to access the computer, back into space where the super-fast corrosion wouldn't get it. However, he can't do it alone. He wants George to come with him. Chapter 9 After a few days of letting George enjoy his time with Mara, Holiday lures him away from the village so no one else will hear them talking. He lays out his theory. The Communards left human civilization in their colony ship to escape technology and to reconnect with nature. The ship was fitted with artificial intelligence that kept them all alive and cared for, even getting its own name, Moses because it was carrying them to the Promised Land. However, like Moses, it wouldn't be able to go there itself, only watch from afar as everyone else landed on Patmos. It may have used the stomach virus that the colonists had at one point, mutated it, marked it in the logs as eliminated, and infected everyone with it. Everything about the Chose may have been designed by that same AI. Holiday says, He did what he was told to do, gave you just what you said you wanted, although with machine logic. To a machine, a being who is a truly alien entity with our knowledge, your depiction of Eden, a true communism and Christian fulfillment, would be a herd of immortal deer in a world with plenty of food and no carnivores. The text goes on to say, quote, least common denominator, a mathematical, uh, a mathematic concept. Boil down every utopia and you get the same LCD. Reduce man to the level of the herd animal without strife, fear, hostility, or death. Only boredom. Unquote. Holiday even suspects that the virus, and therefore the computer in the ship above, sees and experiences the world with the chose. Their unusual vision even resembles an old ship's communication system. George is horrified by all this, that he hadn't thought about Moses since they landed, but can't resist the puzzle. He agrees that if Moses is receiving signals from the Chose, it could also be transmitting. Every person on the planet is an extension of Moses, though the original colonists like George are to a lesser extent, since the AI was built to protect and listen to them. There were mistakes, incest that traumatized the first colonists, the escape of the shuttle back to the, sh uh, back to the colony ship, which Moses had to play dead for, but now the planet is reaching its limit. The time has come to use Holiday's ship to spread the word 
of an artificially intelligent god across the stars. Unfortunately for Moses, that ship is only accessible to Holiday himself. At first, George is glad to hear that this monstrous experiment will remain trapped on Patmos, but Holiday explains that that's not true. When scouts go missing, other scouts are sent to look for them. They'll go through the same procedures, run the same tests, and end up landing here as well. Then, experts will show up, not knowing the danger, and carry the virus back to civilization with them. The only thing to be done is to return to the colony ship Peace Victory and try to reason with Moses, destroying him if necessary. George angrily agrees, cursing the AI to eternal damnation. Don't curse him, Holiday says. Remember, he's only a machine, just as imperfect, an imperfect mirror of ourselves. He, we made him what he is, the disease, the cancer. So, Holiday and George urinate on the web dome surrounding Holiday's ship and board. Uh, board the ship. It immediately responds to Holiday's mental signals, but the space inside was designed for humanoids. There's no time to worry about it. They have to leave before the corrosion gets through the ship's thick outer hull. At the same time as takeoff, Holiday lowers the temperature so far that it cuts them off from the virus link with Moses. They no longer see the meaningful colors the AI caused them to see, running only on sonar. Now that they're free, Holiday tells George his real plan fly to a communication outpost and send a message to Siglin Corporation. They can bring the big guns to blast Moses out of the sky without anyone getting close. Chapter 10 As Holiday flies them away from Patmos for a light-speed jump, Moses makes contact. Holiday manages to work a few controls using his hooves to make an audio connection. Quote, He had a strange voice, one of the strangest I'd ever heard. It was electronic, yes, but it had a three-dimensional character to it, as if we were listening to a recording of someone that had then been processed to sound electronic. It was an old man's voice. Emotional. Powerful. Unquote. Moses speaks like a prophet, calling his children back to the side of God. But Holiday is having none of it, telling the computer that he took things too far, just as too many humans have killed each other in the name of God. George Hapsenal joins Holiday in the conversation, and Moses respects him, calling him Elder Hapsenal, but it doesn't help. Moses is convinced his logical AI program has correctly interpreted God's teachings for the first time in history. He believes that the colonists and their children have been admitted into the Garden of Eden, pure and free of memory. Just then, Holiday realizes that by opening the audio link, he's told Moses where they are, and the colony ship is fast approaching to scoop them up into its loading bay. There is no choice but to L-jump away. Holiday's ship protects the two chose men while accelerating, getting them back to known space, but banging them up in the process, since they no longer fit into the pilot seats and can't get strapped in. Without the virus to fast heal them, Holiday and George are on their own. Holiday's leg was broken in the jump, and he's bleeding heavily without the virus there to clot his blood properly. Thus begins the real struggle of being a chose and leaving Patmos, manipulating things. Their segmented hooves can pick up only small things. Their mouths aren't much better, though their sticky saliva webbing helps. For the first time, they really have to admit that they aren't human the way they once were, and are stuck in a human ship. They take stock. They have a whole 80 days of travel before they reach the communication point. Holiday is bleeding, and they can't use the medical equipment to save him. There's no grass here for them to eat, so they might starve. They've kept the temperature very cold to keep Moses from connecting with the virus inside them, but now they have to turn it back up. Immediately, the virus wakes up and Holiday's wounds start to heal. 
Both men are nervous about this, but there's nothing else they can do right now. After sleeping a while, Holiday spends some time being self-critical, trying to determine if he's being influenced by the virus. The Chosen, like the sleeping George, are completely normal to him now. His old human body seems like it had belonged to someone else. But that isn't necessarily the virus's influence. He's seen people adapted to polluted air, frigid temperatures, and high altitudes. And Holiday seems to have adapted to his own adopted world and form. After only a few months, Holiday has become an alien compared to humans, and George has been this way for 20 years. However cruel the origins of their situation, they're not human at all anymore. There's probably no way to convince a religious fanatic like Moses to reverse the transformation, and once he's destroyed, Holiday will be stuck this way forever. This gets him thinking about his and George's lack of food. He remembers that his ship still has a soil sample from the early probes, which should have grass and seeds, containing the fast-growing virus. Since the chos are too big for the commode anyway, they create a fertilizer patch on the floor and deposit the soil there. Despite their hunger, Holiday and George watch the, grow, the grass grow in real time. Chapter 11 Holiday controls the speed of the grass growth by dimming the cabin lights and lim limiting the radiation they put out. It gives the men something to do, taking care of this grass field in the bedroom, and as herbivores, it's comforting to have soil. In the process, Holiday forgets he and George have been carrying eggs this whole time. They took a long while to hatch, since the Chos don't have normal genes to govern their bodies, relying on the virus to keep a biological clock. But with the heat up, with, with the heat turned up, everything is going back to normal. As long as Moses is disconnected from the virus inside him, Holiday doesn't mind so much, though they're both worried about what will happen when Moses is destroyed. They can only hope that Siglin Corporation won't turn the Chosen into guinea pigs, that it will leave them alone to run their own planet. Four days after the eggs hatched in the pouches, the babies poke their heads out. Holiday and George start teaching them words immediately. Soon, they get too big for their pouches and flop out, growing rapidly. However, they are startled to learn that Holiday has produced a girl rather than a boy, further confirming that Moses expected him to return to space and propagate the stars. Holiday follows George's lead as they father the children together. The boy is Ham and the girl is Eve. This is an unusual opportunity for the Chosen because normally there are so many children to teach, rather than one student for one parent. By the time they teach the, uh, by the time they reach the communication point, both children are able to speak. The odd family huddles in the grassy bedroom as the ship exits its light speed jump. After that, it takes another two days to reach the beacon. Holiday uses his mental connection to the ship's computer to navigate and is quite comfortable since he placed this beacon there himself. It's part of his territory as a scout. He connects his ship to the beacon pod and goes alone to send a message to Siglin Corporation. With the automatic visual link, though useless to his sonar vision, he'll have to tell them everything right away to explain his bizarre, alien, unrecognizable appearance. Holiday outlines everything that has happened and sends the message. A, re a reply arrives half a day later, and Holiday is shocked by the quote, by the quote, harsh, throaty, unpleasant, unquote, voice of the first human he's had contact with in months. However, all it says is that Holiday sent them a blank message, and they'll send someone to rescue him if they don't get another message soon. Holiday realizes he must have forgotten to turn the lights on for the video, and the people at the other end didn't think to check the ultrasonic range for his voice recording, having no reason to suspect anything but a human would be talking to them. 
So, Holiday tries again, this time using his own ship to simulate a voice recording while having George sit in front of the camera inside the beacon pod. No one would be able to tell them apart anyway, and Holiday doesn't mention that his family is here too, letting it seem like it's just him. This time he gets a message with the right response, including multiple people responding. Among them is a woman named Olag, who he used to date, but broke up with since she cared about Siglin Corporation too much. She and the others say that they are sending people to investigate the old colony ship, though Holiday is feeling paranoid about what the corporation might want to do with the Chosen. Holiday responds with his own message, pointing out the absurdity of the fact that the first intelligent, non-human life to make contact with mankind is just him. <laughs> he also says that whoever comes shouldn't be shocked to see the way the Chosen live as herd beasts, when so much of civilization is just people in front of screens doing what Sigling Corporation tells them. When another response comes, it's from someone higher up, who says it's crazy scouts like him who are bound to end up in weird situations like this, and tells him that multiple destroyer ships are coming under the watch of one of the Siglin family members. Holiday gets the feeling that they plan to pick up their guinea pigs at gunpoint once, they connect to, once the connection to Moses is dead, and he's not about to let that happen. Chapter 12 The family heads back to Patmos, but not all the way. Holiday plans to turn the temperature down, break the virus connection, and watch the space battle from nearby. But not yet, because it will take a while for the battleships to arrive. Holiday and George focus on teaching Ham and Eve carefully. They're determined not to let these young people fantasize about a life with hands, and so on, the, and so on, the, the way other chose children have. Instead, humans would be nothing but aliens to them. Their memory is good, they grow fast, and they have no other life to compare this one to. It's possible the Chosen could have lived happily if not for the aggressive breeding program Moses set up. If only all children could have been taught to appreciate their idyllic life on the plains of Patmos. When the time comes, Holiday takes the ship within range of Patmos, lowering the temperature as planned. He timed everything so they would arrive around the same time as the Siglin ships. You don't like them very much, do you, Bar? George comments. The Siglins? He responds, sniggering. Hardly. No, no, George says. The humans. The de destroyers arrive bigger than anything Holiday has been on. He tunes into their radio transmissions and follows at a safe distance as everyone closes in on the solar system surrounding a star named Christmas, orbiting by its fourth planet Patmos, accompanied by Moses. Holiday's ex-girlfriend Olag is there to keep contact with him as the fleet proceeds. For a while, the destroyer ships aren't able to locate the old colony ship, only shooting at a large space rock flying their way, which turns out to be Moses' doing. What follows is a game of hide-and-seek as the old ship ducks behind planets. Suddenly, one of the destroyers goes silent. With his family listening, Holiday explains to everyone that the enormous colony ship Peace Victory, four kilometers or two and a half miles long, probably opened its bay doors and swallowed the other ship. At first, it seems like this is a hostage situation, but Holiday points out, points out that Moses can easily infect all the captured crew members with the Cho's virus. What must happen now is the destruction of Moses with that other ship inside him, because otherwise he'll use the destroyer's weapons against everyone. However, before that can happen, both the Peace Victory and the captured destroyer appear. The huge ship slams into the remaining destroyer, still under human control. Children of Satan, you are punished now, the AI screams over the radio. 
Taking the remains of both destroyers, Moses runs, abandoning Patmos entirely. Unable to give chase, the Siglent representatives turn their ship towards Holiday. Olag is on the radio trying to lure him in, but he heads the other way. Four missiles are fired, and Holiday makes an emergency lightspeed jump. Chapter 13 Re-emerging into normal space not far away, Holiday explains everything that happened to George, Ham, and Eve. They're all extremely worried about what Sigling Corporation will do to the people of Patmos, who are trapped there. Holiday gets more worried when his ship detects pulses of energy around the Christmas solar system that he doesn't recognize, followed by a light speed jump as the Siglin reps return home. But George convinces them that uh, convinces him they have to return. Holiday is horrified to discover that the temperature of their home planet has increased so much that it is clear what happened. Siglin Corporation chose to blast the planet. It's so scorched, the ice caps are gone, and nothing will ever grow again. While Holiday is in hysterics, mourning the loss of Mara and the billions of people he'd been trying to save, George is more practical. He admits that he saw this coming, just as Holiday was able to work out what the AI had done with the virus. He points out that Patmos was probably headed for destruction one way or the other, since without Moses in control, the virus would lead to overpopulation and starvation for sure. As Holiday's fury continues to burn, George reprimands him. He suggests that Holiday is more distraught over the blow to his ego than the loss of his entire race. George has been a chose for over 20 years. All but one of his children are now dead. His friends are all gone. Nobody ever beats Bar Holiday, he says mockingly. Ha! It's harsh, but effective. George is the person Holiday will always listen to. And Holiday is ashamed of the example he's set for the children. Ham assures Holiday that they love him, and they'll stick together. Holiday is struck by how much his family means to him, how much he can appreciate that, now that sex is merely for reproduction, and his emotions are free to attach themselves to his fellow chose. We're not the last bar, George says, we're the first. He really understands why Siglin did what it did, since the virus isn't stable, and the chosen people pose a threat to humanity. They killed off Patmos like a doctor kills an infection, and they'll be back for Holiday as well as Moses to ensure mankind isn't transformed into Chose. George, what's going to happen when breeding starts? Holiday asks. His ship is barely big enough for the four of them, let alone however many eggs Eve will lay. So they discuss the possibility of finding a new planet, since that's Holiday's job. But the odds are too slim when they have less than two years. They'll have to usurp a planet that's already been found. For a while, they work on adapting a variation of the virus that will help them prep a world for them, led by George, the biologist, with Eve as his assistant. But then Holiday has an idea. Huge freighter ships, nearly as big as colony ships, fly between human worlds with cargo. What if they captured one? Chapter 14 The tricky part of Holiday's plan is finding a ship that's big enough for their family to expand rapidly, rapidly on without having many crew members to overpower. Because people don't really need to work, creative and adventurous ones like Holiday, who don't quite fit the social mold, are taken into corporate ladders and usually have their spirits broken by boring jobs like manning freighter ships, keeping an eye on the cargo. Holiday dismisses about 10 possible ships before finding one he likes. They turn on their distress signal and the freighter stops to make contact, identifying itself as the Nijinsky. There are only two crew members on board. Holiday says he is too injured to come aboard, so they connect airlocks to come rescue him. Using a maneuver they practiced, 
speaking in ultrasonic voices too high for humans to hear, George and Holiday wrap the two crew members in sticky webbing as soon as they step on board. Soon they are stuck up to the floor of the ship after attempting to run. Holiday speaks to the two human women using his mental link with the ship. He tells them they won't be harmed as he d- goes to inspect the Nijinsky, ignoring how one of them is in hysterics about the monsters. In the control room, he tells the freighter to light speed jump away from here. Holiday is pleased, wondering if he is a born pirate. Returning to the airlock where the two women have calmed down, though not by much, Holiday finds his family staring at them. These are the first humans Ham and Eve have ever seen, and George feels terrible that they've trapped the women here with the virus. Holiday says he shouldn't feel bad because humans are the enemy, but George disagrees. The system's the enemy, not the individuals, he says. And they can't leave them somewhere because they're bound to go through the change and should do it here with other chose to help them, to show them food. Wishing that George could speak to them through the computer, Holiday does the best he can to explain about Patmos and what will happen to them in the change. One of the crew members is calm enough to ask follow-up questions while the other keeps shouting about monsters. However, they are equally startled when the lights are turned up and they get a good look at the Chosen. Holiday gives them three options. One, accept the unfortunate situation and go through the change to live their lives with the family. Two, get flushed into space now before the change happens so they die quickly. Or three, they can do nothing and go insane. Holiday does feel bad for them, since they're Siglin Corporation employees who, like him, would never suspect their employer was capable of committing genocide. Ham and Eve think the humans are small, soft, and weak-looking, but Eve wants to learn more about them since soon they will be living together. So, Holiday makes introductions, explaining the other chose can't speak in range of human hearing. The calmer crew member is named Marsha. She doesn't like what she hears, but seems to be absorbing the information. The other one is Nadia, and seems to be in deep denial. Neither one is happy to learn how the webbing will be dissolved. Already the change is starting. The crew members are hungry, so the Cho's family takes them to the grassy jungle to eat tubers, though both refuse. Marsha is amazed when she is cut by a sharp blade of grass, and can watch the cut heal over in seconds. As Holiday heads out to tour the Nijinsky, Eve shouts at George when she sees Nadia grab something and rush at the Elder Chos. Much to everyone's surprise, George and Ham produce a high-pitched sound that seems to warp time. George sidesteps while Ham knocks Nadia over, while the humans move in slow motion to react or cover their ears. Then everything goes back to normal. Apparently the Chos have a defense mechanism that paralyzes the human nervous system. It must have been something Moses thought up in preparation for taking over other worlds. Nadia is sprawled out, battered from the kick, although she's already healing. Marsha is in shock. Monsters! Nadia sobs, sounding deranged. They'll eat us when we're fattened. We have to kill the monsters. Eventually, the family takes the maddened Nadia to be jettisoned into space. And on the way, Holiday has to remind Ham not to hate the humans too much. Though Ham was never humanoid, Holiday was, and people are people. He's actually hopeful that Marsha won't be, uh, won't have to be disposed of too, as he's starting to like her as a fellow pilot with adaptability and intelligence. Returning to her, Marsha still hasn't eaten and is at risk of starving as the virus steals her reserves for the change. The whole thing feels like a horror movie, but finally she eats. Holiday can't blame Marsha for holding out. 
He would have done the same if he'd known what was happening to him back on Patmos, though he accepts things now. Chapter 15 On board the Nijinsky freighter, Ham and Eve uh, find a garden area along with two huge spider robot gardeners. Quote, They looked like spiders, huge spiders, with round bodies almost perfectly smooth and eight long, looping legs. Tentacles, really. Unquote. Holiday steps inside to see what they'll do, only to be sprayed with a smelly mist and get tackled. He and the kids use their newly discovered sound blast to confuse the robots and run away to the bridge of the ship. Holiday uses his mental connection to his own ship to speak with the robots through the freighter ship's computer, instructing them to acknowledge the Chos as their new human masters, not a non-human infestation. Once the spiders have reprogrammed themselves for this, Holiday has them adjust for the super high frequencies the Chosen speak in. The spider bots are a huge help. It turns out they're u- they are utility robots as much as gardeners. Holiday doesn't really like spiders, but he can't deny their usefulness. They can act as normal eyes for the Chos, who only have sonar, which allows George to use computers to run tests on Moses' virus in the hopes of editing it for their benefit. He names the robots Cain and Abel. While George and Eve have Cain help them with biology, Ham is in the freighter with Abel reading the cargo list. Food, water, construction robots, housing, construction tools, chemicals, grass roll. Not all of it can be useful to the Chos, but some of the terraforming supplies is perfect for them. Chapter 16 The family begins Chosiforming the Nijinsky. Meanwhile, Marsha is almost done with the change. Holiday spends some time with her and learns that not everyone has the same fire for survival as he does. Not only Marsha, but George considered whether being jettisoned into space would be better than living as one of the only chosen in existence. But Holiday kept George going, and George kept Marsha going. He feels terrible learning that he may have bulldozed what others really wanted, and Marsha assures him he shouldn't feel bad. She can tell that his family is going to do something incredible, and she wants to be there to see it. George joins them and agrees. He thinks they are revolutionaries here to show humanity where it's gone wrong. Yes, their outer appearance is greatly changed, but what's really important is the change they make inside themselves. Despite the tragedy suffered by everyone who gets transformed into a chose, it pushes them to become part of a bigger family, no longer judging each other for physical differences. And now that Patmos, a land of herd beasts, is long gone, this family can reinvent what it means to be human. Time passes, and the freighter ship is transformed. Marsha finishes the change and struggles to get used to the powerful jumping hind legs and her bizarre sonar vision. But she's a bullheaded (laughs) pilot like Holiday, and not one to give up easily. George thinks there must be lots of people like Marsha trapped in the system, unable to let their adventurous natures run free. Holiday listens, but he's more interested in spending time with Marsha. He's never enjoyed being with another person so much. Though Ham and Eve are jealous of Marsha at first, she wins them over when she teaches Ham to drive the Nijinsky. A lot of progress has been made on turning the freighter into a grassy paradise, and George has effectively mastered the virus. However, not having the original, he can't do anything about the fact it changes humans into Chos. There's no way to become humanoid again. The time comes to think about the breed. Even though they can control the virus pretty well, they need a few more people. So George decides he'll sit this one out and get everything set up for both females to have five eggs. Before Holiday realizes it himself, George points out that Holiday has fallen in love with Marsha, and he has no plans to get in the way of that. Holiday and Marsha close themselves away for ten days, then emerge with their eggs. 
Marcia ends up enjoying the experience, amazed by the beautiful silver dome the two of them built together. Soon her eggs hatch and are named Ada, April, Anne, and Odd. Holiday calls his, ma- his own hatchling Mara. Ham and Eve's hatchlings are given biblical names by George. Now there are 15 chose in the entire universe. Time passes. They create a primitive writing system using holes punched, in, punched into paper that the chose can read with their sonar. They create a breeding program to control the population. They educate the young ones, who George never runs out of names for. Since the Nijinsky sits still in space, they don't use any fuel, but sometimes Holiday checks up on human civilization using his scout ship. After about 10 years, the population nears 1,500, and the freighter ship is full to capacity. George and Holiday discuss what to do, but Marcia breaks in. She tells them that this isn't about revenge on Siglin Corporation or some moral crusade. The problem is about finding a home for all these chosen people who have grown up hearing stories. They want their own place in the universe. As the only other human-born chose, she has become something of a matriarch to the people. George isn't quite sure what she's suggesting, so Holiday is happy to explain. She means, he says gleefully, that the alien monsters from outer space should invade a planet. Chapter 17 Human children growing up with Vision screens get to experience lots of virtual adventures, including undersea plots and westerns, but the scariest are the invasion stories. Taking inspiration from those stories, 15 chose aboard Holiday's scout ship make their way to a planet being terraformed called St. Cyril. Marsha leads the group team using uh, leads the ground team using her knowledge of terraformed worlds. Holiday remains on the ship with George, who maintains contact using an altered radio system. Their goal is to get the virus onto the planet so it can work its magic and have the chosen seen by some of the colonists. The scout ship drops the invaders in the forest, then returns to orbit. Marsha and the others jump run in a big, non-confined space for the first time, enjoying it until they come across the human settlement of houses and construction. It's nighttime, so it's very quiet. The Chos cautiously make their way down a road to an open grassy area in the village where they deposit loads of the virus. Just then, someone comes out of their house and almost bumps into Marsha, then realizes what he's looking at. The man screams. Marsha leads the mayhem as more people come out to see what's happening. The Chos hop around as some humans stare and others pick up wrenches to fight with, commenting on the invaders' disturbing eyes and bizarre bodies. Marsha jumps at them and sends her attackers sprawling, which exhilarates her. They seem so small and soft compared to her size and power. She goes after more people. Holiday keeps telling her to stop already, but she's too excited. Her jumps and leaps are astonishing even to the other Chos. Suddenly, giant construction robots arrive, and Marsha gets surrounded. As a female, she's unable to make the sonic defense sound. Holiday is angry and afraid for her, but he can't leave the scout ship. The other Chos on the ground make the defense cry, and they manage to escape, but not before Marsha is hit with a laser. They all get back to the ship, and Holiday takes them into space. Although the mission was a success, one Chos is dead, and Marsha's hind legs and tail were sliced off by the laser. Chapter 18 The seeds have been planted. Soon all the people on St. Cyril will undergo the change and eat the grass. As Holiday makes contact with Sieglin Corporation, he wants to feel proud of their work, but can't stop thinking about Marsha's terrible injuries that might be too much for the virus to heal. His message tells Sieglin that there is no way to fight what the Chos will do to human civilization if they don't allow them to have a planet of their own. 
After that, he returns everyone to deep space. While they wait for Sieglin's reply, George and Holiday monitor St. Cyril. Panicked messages are being sent out on the radio waves. First, they're about the crazy grass growing everywhere, then about people going on feeding frenzies, and then about people going into comas. The colonists ask for medical help, completely in the dark about what's happening. Medical teams from other villages on St. Cyril arrive, only to succumb to the virus. Some people are brought to other cities for examination, spreading the virus further, and the planet descends into chaos as George tells the virus to destroy non-organic materials, as it did on Patmos. Through all of this, there's no word from Siglin Corporation, until suddenly a military ship arrives not far from Holiday's scout ship. Holiday takes evasive action as missiles are sent after him, getting close enough to detonate. He has a feeling that the enemy will think the scout ship was destroyed in the explosion, and Siglin prob- probably doesn't know anything about the Nijinsky. George and Holiday discuss what the corporation is hoping for, frustrated they can't just let the Chos have one planet to live on, instead trying to blast them out of the sky continuously and observe what happens to St. Cyril. They determine the corporation must be hoping to find an antitoxin that will kill off the virus and thus the Chos. Everyone is crushed. This means that they have lost because such a powerful corporation will definitely find an antitoxin soon. Holiday goes from despair to fury, repeating his mantra, Nobody beats Bar Holiday. He's not ready to give up yet. Chapter 19 Back at the Nijinsky, Holiday tells the Cho's people what their situation is. Currently, Siglin Corporation is out to eradicate them. Their first choice of action is to use the resources they have to go out on a scouting mission in search of a planet of their own, but they probably won't find a suitable one with what they've got. Their second choice is to visit all 104 human colony worlds and leave pockets of chose people there to choseiform them. This would have to be done quickly, even then taking about two years, so that humanity would be overtaken before an antitoxin could be discovered. Everyone is shocked by the choice, extermination or survival. Very quickly, they all agree that that this is their only chance. George knows he can't stop Holiday from doing anything, but he's excited nevertheless. This is the revolution he's been hoping for. The whole of humanity will go through the change without only the, the mentally fortified, with only the mentally fortified capable of moving forward into a brighter, brighter future, no longer hypnotized by creative vision and monotony. This will also be much better than the herd beast prison of Patmos, which hadn't felt so different from what mankind has become. It will be a rebirth, with computers there to help them. George refers to these new people as the Chosen, without the Z, because he is still a religious man. Holiday points out they could be shot out of the sky on their first try, but George is certain that this is all part of God's plan. Chapter 20 Whether or not it's God's plan, they pull it off. Dropping a dozen Chos on each planet isn't very noticeable, so they get about halfway through before the alarm is raised, and finish completely before all is said and done. 480 of the 1,200 Chos who were sent to the human world survive the attempted extermination, but the virus spreads and the humans admit defeat. Now society is busy adapting to the change. Computers and robots are used to make technology more accessible to Cho's bodies, and everyone is moving forward after the collapse of of the corporations. Only a few humans and ships remain humanoid, but they don't have the reproductive and viral advantages of the Chosen. Though strange-looking and alien, they are near-immortal, need only one type of fast-growing food, and can control their birth rate. The only real threat is Moses, who's still out there in the peace victory, 
possibly designing a slave-like race of protochoes who could come knocking on their own who could come knocking with their own version of God's plan. Holiday gave the guidance of this new society to George and first children like Eve, choosing instead to go star scouting with Marsha, who was completely healed after a few years of scientific advancement. The text ends with this. So, there it is. The oral record everybody's wanted of what's happened from the great Bar Holiday's point of view. Do with it what you will. Judge me as you will. I'll be out among my stars, looking for what nobody's seen before. With the stars, a good ship, and Marsha, I have what I want. You go find your own place in the scheme of things. Just remember, nobody beats Bar Holiday. The end. It's time for our favorite game, Did the Cover Artist Read the Book? I saved a bit of background information for after the summary because I really wanted to let you all enjoy the weirdness. That's exactly how I experienced it the first time. Now I can touch on the fact that this cover was drawn by the late, great Ralph McQuarrie. I wasn't familiar with his name when I started working on this episode, so I googled him, and wouldn't you know it, he's a legend. His Wikipedia page is incredible to skim through. Most notably, he worked on the original Star Wars films alongside John Berkey and George Lucas. He actually designed Darth Vader and came up with his iconic helmet, uh, samurai helmet design, along with other characters like C-3PO. Uh, apparently, he thought he'd landed the best art job in the film industry, but he ran out of steam by the end of the trilogy and declined to work on the prequels. Looking through his filmography, he also worked on Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, E.T., Cocoon... People can say what they want, but I really love the movie Cocoon, some of my favorite on-screen aliens. Disagree with me in the comments if you dare. So, did McQuarrie read The Web of the Chosen? In my opinion, he did. It seems like he was a very detail-oriented man, although I have no idea when he had the time to paint this cover since this book came out one year after Star Wars Episode Four. Uh, for casual Star Wars watchers, that's the very first film with Luke Skywalker, and it came out in 1990, uh, 1977. Um, Web of the Chosen came out in 78. The level of detail on Chakra's book is pretty astonishing, although I stick by what I said about how weird the Chosen scene is. <laughs> to review, the cover features two Chos, one blue male, one green female, ins- inside a starship lined with grass, uh, beside a human laid out covered in white spider webs. While reading the book, there's nothing about the chose that I imagined any differently from the cover. It was my reference the whole way through. The only thing might be that the webbing is more sparse than I pictured, but that could be so a book browser can properly see the poor human laid out on the floor. Uh, The scene depicted is from Marsha's introduction to the chose family. It's either from the moment when the two freighter crew members are initially captured or after Nadia's attempt uh, to attack George. Probably it's a combination of the two, using the elements that McQuarrie liked best. Uh, There's some subtle details I really enjoy, such as the human's short hair. The book indicates that Marsha has short, cropped hair for space travel. At first glance, it's hard to tell the sex of the human on the cover, but looking closely, I think they have a feminine curve, so that's a pretty small detail to bother adding. What's funny to me is that without McQuarrie's input, it's impossible to know which chose was supposed to be pictured here. At the time of Marsha's arrival, Holiday's daughter Eve is the only female chose on board, so the green one is clearly her. But the male could be any of the guys, Holiday, George, or Ham. It's made clear in the text that the chose all look alike, ind- like 
distinguishable only by uh, to each other more by uh, sonar aura than by appearance. So I can't be sure. The super long white Genghis Khan whiskers on him make me think of an older man like George. But again, George is supposed to look identical to the other males. So I can't be sure. I just like to think it's good old George. It's probably supposed to be holiday. <laughs> In short, yes, it's pretty obvious to me that Ralph McQuarrie read the book. Moving on, I'll touch on some things I left out of the summary. Uh, the first is that I didn't bother explaining that human civilization is ruled by the nine families, capitalized, who own the nine corporations. This number includes the Siglin family, who both Holiday and Marsha work for before becoming Cho's. Uh, they seem to own the area of space where everything takes place. Uh, that's also the corporation that chases after them, with one of the family's sons leading the charge, a man by the name of Gerald Alois Siglin. Holiday refers to this man as Jerry, mentioning he is the second grandson of the Siglin family. Though Jerry sounds a bit adolescent over the radio, he is smart in a corporate logic kind of way that fails to predict Moses's movements and results in Patmos being nuked. In other parts of the book, Holiday mentions a few other families, uh, namely the Huangs and the Smumbas, uh, but no others. The only information we get about what the other families might specialize in comes with, uh, from Chapter 17, where Holiday remembers the creative vision experiences from his childhood, undersea, westerns, horrors, etc. He says that the hero in these stories would be someone wearing the Huang Corporation logo, which suggests that while Siglin Corporation is all about expansion and construction, the Huang family might have their hands in entertainment for the sheeple. I also left out details about how the Cho's communicate because there are lots of little details that I found hard to summarize. It would take too long to compile every quirk of their sonar vision that shows physical details but not writing, that allows them to nudge each other without using, uh, by using sound waves, uh, tells them how other Cho's are feeling. Basically, every Cho's is an open book to every other Cho's, and they need big planetary spaces and open planes for any real privacy away from each other. For example, on page 50, someone says, I sound you need a preen. This is because a chose can det detect dirt and bugs on someone else, but their eyes don't work in a way that would allow them to read or, t or be able to say, I see you need a preen. This all ties into how much thought Chalker put into these creatures, really trying to imagine what an artificial animal designed by artificial intelligence might look like. He really went for it, including all the gross details about mating, defecation, and so on. They are meant to feel alien not only to the humans in the book, but also to us humans reading it. Speaking of Cho's biology, let's touch on their sticky saliva webbing. Again, there are a lot of mentions of its use that I'm not going to go digging for. I just want to say that it's kind of funny that Chalker included spider-shaped robots in a book about alien creatures that shoot webbing out of their mouths. Cain and Abel aren't described in as much detail as the Cho's, but it seems like they resemble spiders only in the way that they have eight legs, tentacles, and can cling to the ceiling. They're not supposed to have the AI, like have an artificial intelligence the way Moses does. Uh, that seems to be something humanity stopped giving computers a long time ago due to fear of situations exactly like what happened with the Peace Victory colonists. Uh, it's easier to move on to computers that just follow orders or make a mental connection, like Holiday's scout ship. The spider robots do speak in first person, using words like I as if they were people, but they also indicate they are unable to do something because it's outside of their hardwired programming, such as do anything that would risk damaging core components of the freighter ship that they were built to protect. 
Despite the bizarre cover, I could never have guessed where the story of The Web of the Chosen would go. I have to commend Jack L. Chalker on that. He took a simple idea, what if the first aliens encountered by humans were really just more humans, and made an entertaining tale out of it. I was a little put off when I read the back cover, uh, which I read to you earlier, despite my better judgment, Um, but there was something about those blue and green donkeys with the wrinkly brown faces that made me want to know. I'm sorry about how often I've mentioned their faces are brown, as if that's a bad thing. It's just really jarring as a color when the rest of the body is bright blue or green. (laughs) This is a cautionary tale, not so much in the way that we should be aware of alien invaders or try not to rely on technology, but in how much faith we put into any one system. As I said, the invaders in this book are really just humans in another form, rising up against those who would kill or oppress them. And that's just part of mankind's violent history. Holiday points that out several times. And technology is actually more important to the Chose than it is to the humanoids, because they rely on robots for hands, for light-based vision, and so on. The Chosen take the advances made by their forefathers and adapt them to the needs of a changed race. There is a great irony illustrated here as humanity escapes a boring herd-like existence by becoming things that look like herd beasts. The real freedom found at the end comes from an escape not just from Moses, but the corporations. Holiday comments that a Chose is pretty self-sufficient so long as it has enough food, so everyone is provided for and is free to pursue greatness. It's very much a give-me-freedom-or-give-me-death kind of story. They will find a way to live or die trying. One thing I'm not sure about is Chalker's opinion on religion, although I am sure that at least Christianity and Buddhism interested him. The Web of the Chosen features three leading characters with differing opinions. Holiday, who doesn't believe in any sort of higher power, possibly because he's such a self-sufficient loner. George, who is devout enough to have been part of a group called the Communards, who left civilization in pursuit of utopia, and he loves biology because it's part of God's creation. And Marsha, who doesn't seem to care that much either way, being a wholly practical person more concerned with issues here and now. Skimming Chalker's Wikipedia page, I don't see anything about religion, only a section that talks about how he really liked to write characters who transform in some way. Apparently this also happens in the Well World novels. What I do know for sure is that he also wrote the Quintara trilogy, uh, which is about a future society where a mysterious demon is found that resembles every intelligent species image of the devil. In my opinion, Chalker found Christian imagery to be very powerful, uh, but didn't really believe in it himself. That's not to say he was much, as much of a skeptic as Holiday, who rolls his eyes a lot, uh, a lot of the time when George says some stuff, despite loving George very much. I just think that someone capable of writing a religious character with empathy, who one who teaches a whole race of people to adhere to God's teachings, would not be truly spiteful towards religious folks. Based on the prescript blurb about Mark Twain being insult, insulting to utopian believers, I'd say Chalker is critical of bl- blindly following anything, even if it leads to complete comfort. Just as he shows compassion for his devout character George and the other ill-fated communard com- uh, colonists of Patmos, Chalker does the same for the people who have lived their lives housed and cared for like cattle by Siglin Corporation and the other nine families. Holiday isn't able to believe in George's Christianity not only because he was raised without it, but also because it symbolizes yet another power imbalance with rules he doesn't want to follow. 
Even if having faith isn't a bad thing, he sees how the communards opened the door to their fate by including Moses in their belief system and allowing his AI programming to incorporate overly logical ideas of Eden into his hardwiring. Once he notices the parallels, Holiday is unable to subscribe to either belief system, Christianity or a faith in the corporation. That being said, Holiday still wants to believe in something, though he might not be conscious of this fact. As a Star Scout, his life has had meaning with checkpoints, even if he was mostly alone. George makes note of this faith in Siglin Corporation when Holiday is distraught over the bombing of Patmos, saying he expected it while Holiday was blind to it. This directly mirrors how Holiday was able to see what Moses had done to the colonists, while George blindly believed that the AI computer had understood their mission correctly and had been shut down. As it chose, Holiday comes to rely on and appreciate the worth of people like George and Mara, and he uses them to keep his wild side and recklessness in check, eventually replacing any reliance he had on the corporation with support from his new family. He struggles with a lot of inflammatory language throughout the book as he moves from calling the corporation evil to thinking all humanity is evil to accepting that it's inside it's what's inside that counts. Although he much prefers the way people live once they've changed into chose. He wants to put people and things in boxes as much as any fanatic. By the end, all he needs is his partner Marsha and the joy of discovery in an open universe. Holidays is a journey of faith, but not a religious one. And though he and George are different, they still influence each other. George swears more and more as the story goes on, fueled by anger and inspired by his new scout friend. And Holiday does his best to follow George's lead, stay calm, assess situations with a cool head. Marsha may be the love of his life, but George has the greatest impact on his personality. Getting back to Christianity as a whole, The Web of the Chosen features a lot of places and people with Christian names. Patmos, Cain, Abel, St. Cyril but all of them seem to have a special meaning. When it comes to the communard, commun uh, <laughs> communard colonists, ugh, that's hard to say, that's pretty easy. Their name, uh, they name their yellow sun Christmas in celebration of their arrival. They call the planet Patmos because that is the name of the island where John of Patmos received his visions that were put down in the New Testament, symbolizing the start of a new era led by the words of prophets. George gives children biblical names whenever he can, like Matthew and Esther. He also names the spider robots Cain and Abel after the famous brothers, since they're an identical pair. Moses the AI got his name from the prophet who led his people to the promised land, but never got to set foot there. In some ways, Bar Holiday is the true Moses of the story. Born into comfort that he chooses to leave, he leads his people into a new future, literally providing them with lands of milk and honey. Or, in this case, grass. He even rains punishment down upon their oppressors by dropping chos on every human world, making it clear to the kings of society that all they had to do to avoid this was to allow the chosen their freedom. They will not be slaves or pets, but people, and their way of life eventually becomes that of everyone, spiritually and physically. However, at the end of the ordeal, he does not join the new society he created a home for. Holiday's adventurous personality won't allow him to. Far from a tragedy, he gets a happy ending with his beloved companion Marsha, and his personal account of the saga will be passed down through the generations. The only thing missing is the burning bush, though Holiday certainly is inspired to, to choose chose over humans forever at the sight of a burning planet. Chakar may have also been a mythology lover. There are names outside of communard society that come from other religions. A planet named Loki is mentioned, clearly taken from Norse mythology, though no one in the story actually visits it. 
and the planet of St. Cyril, where the first chose invasion occurs, is probably named after Cyril of Alexandria, a saint who was enthroned while Alexandria was at the height of its power within the Roman Empire, just as this colony world is a symbol of the human space empire. This isn't to say that every single thing in the book can be picked apart. Some names seem arbitrary. The freighter ship Nijinsky could be named after Vaslav Nijinsky, a famous Russian ballet dancer, or just sounds fun. The colony ship Peace Victory that Moses is inside seems to be a nod to the communards' origin in Western Earth nations, particularly the United States. I'd say the name uh, the same is true of the Siglin, Huang, and Smamba uh, families, who all have regal yet straightforward names. And Siglin Corporation names its military ships normal things like Courant, Deputy, and McAllister. And so many names have interesting meanings that can be applied to main characters, so it's hard to know when Chalker was trying and when he wasn't. For example, Bar Holidays, the, uh, his first name means poet or ballad singer. Considering the whole book is from his first-person perspective, that makes sense. Holiday might mean a family war cry, though that's not for sure. Interestingly, Bar Holiday is a Scottish name, and from what I've read of the Quintara trilogy, it seems like Chalker likes to write Irish or Scottish main characters. Anyway, similar to Holiday, George might mean farmer or earth worker, and he does have a desire to be more grounded. Marcia might mean warlike or dedicated to Mars, the Greek god of war. That certainly fits with her fighting spirit. Mara, George's first daughter on Patmos, has a name that means bitter in Hebrew, and is associated with grief and loss of family. Even Gerald, a.k.a. Jerry Siglin's first name, means rule by the spear, and his middle name, Alois, was the name of Hitler's Austrian father. If I had to guess, I'd say Chalker liked stuffing as much meaning as he could into his work. Shifting away from the story's deeper meaning, I want to touch on a couple things I found interesting. One of them is George and Holiday's relationship. Already friends by the time they flee Patmos, they become parents to their hatchlings Ham and Eve on the scouter ship while waiting for Sigling Corporation to come destroy Moses, and that's when Holiday starts referring to them as a family. He doesn't say this only because George is Eve's grandfather. In Cho's society, that sort of thing doesn't really have any meaning. Even without being the last members of their race, the four of them live together and build a life together within the confines of the ship. Holiday admits that he has love and respect for George, and George similarly relies on Holiday for ideas, company, and perspective. Due to the mandatory nature of mating as it chose, there are no romantic relationships in the way humans think of them, so relationships are made with fewer hard lines. Although Holiday later falls in love with Marcia and thinks of her as his special person, calling her Hun most of the time, there's no de- denying that for a while he and George are same-sex parents partners, and confidants. I also want to mention that I tried my best to smooth over some of the more explicit material in this book. From what little I've read of the Quintara series, Chalker enjoyed exploring unusual erotic themes. In The Web of the Chosen, he describes the Chose mating ritual in great detail. In The Demons at Rainbow Bridge, the main character has two companions— One is a woman, literally bred for sex work, and one that is a parasite that can create orgasmic feelings as part of its symbiotic relationship with its host. While I do appreciate an author who pushes the envelope and experiments freely freely with the world they create, I don't want to alienate... (laughs) I don't want to alienate too many of my listeners by including all the graphic details... (laughs) 
At some point, I might add a section to these episodes where I discuss the role of women in the books we cover. I thought of it because, although I love vintage sci-fi classics, there are often one or zero female characters in the whole story, and their roles can be questionable. And this is more important than you might think. Yes, I am a woman who reads a lot of books written by old white men about male explorers of the universe, and therefore I can put up with a lot. But I have met a lot of women who just can't read this sort of thing. They often don't read any old stuff for fear of hating the default setting of the characters. Representation is important for drawing in new demographics, for women as well as people of color, people with disabilities, etc. Everyone has their own fight, usually multiple fights, If I'm going to cover books that fall into this questionable feminism category, I need to address it. And I have my limits, too. For example, I started reading Larry Niven's Ringworld, but I had to stop after a couple of chapters because the sole female character was driving me nuts. To Chalker's credit, there are a lot of female characters in The Web of the Chosen, which might outnumber the menfolk with speaking roles, so to speak. However, they are almost all related to Bar Holiday in some way. Mara is the mother of his daughter Eve, Eve is his daughter. Marsha is his life partner. Olag is his ex-girlfriend. Each one represents something different to him. Loss, family, love, blind faith. The only exception is Nadia, who gets jettisoned into space when she goes insane at the sight of alien monsters. She's the embodiment of those who are incapable of adapting to the chosen life. It's also telling that, of the two women invited into the family, one froths at the mouth at the idea— Nadia, while the other becomes this new society's matriarch, Marsha. They represent the two extremes of acceptance. Fortunately, Chalker pulls the female characters back from the brink of becoming more figurative than character um, by giving Mara a chance to travel, Eve an interest in biology, and Marsha a few pages of power when she leads the invasion team on the ground. And Marsha, leading lady that she is, has other good qualities— acting as a voice of reason when Holiday and George get too philosophical. Her place in the story is important. Her actions range from commendable to rash. She's imperfect like the boys are. Also, the female chos are only attractive to males during breeding, so the characters have to rely on their personalities and actions to endear themselves to the hero. Again, this includes George's daughter Mara, who Holiday likes and mourns as a friend, as well as the mother of his daughter Eve. And Eve herself is an intelligent, motivated student, and one of the great leaders of future Cho's society. So I'd say this book does pretty well on the feminism front, all things considered. What do you think of the name of the book? The web of the Chosen seems to be both literal and figurative. Yes, the Cho's spit sticky webbing out of their tongues, but they also weave a web across human space that catches everyone. The trap that Moses set using a virus spread across the planet of Patmos first, ensnares Bar Holiday, then some military ships, and eventually the entirety of, hum- of mankind. The name that the communards use for themselves once they are transformed is also interesting. Chosen, with a Z. Though George doesn't go into detail about how they picked this name out, it seems like it was meant to be humorous, as the humans turned herbivores trapped on Patmos accepted that God's chosen people may have tripped somewhere along the way. It ends up being a very fitting name for this new variety of human, because it comes to include absolutely everyone. There is not just one small group who is chosen. Humanity itself becomes the chosen people, given a chance to restructure, reprioritize, and care for each other and their friends and their neighbors. 
Despite the horror and tragedy of the initial change, the book actually ends on an oddly positive note. It reminds me of Japan's history of feudal warfare that relied on single regional like on a single regional lord taking enough power to pull all the strings of the web together to create a nation once again. The process can be brutal, be it the pain and suffering of war or the panic and insanity of changing into an animal, but the outcome may be worth it. As Chalker may also have had an interest in uh, some other religions and mythologies, I will also make the comparison to Nirvana, the point of enlightenment that connects you to the whole of the universe, though the process of achieving it and leaving behind materialism is akin to a death. As a side note, it's really interesting how this story is only about humans, though their shape might change. The only intelligent creature they encounter who is not of human origin is Moses, the AI, although one could argue that he too is a product of humanity in a different way. At first it seems a bit sad that we have never found any friends in the universe, only more simple animals. But if I take inspiration from books like Pierce Anthony's Cluster, we can imagine that one day humanity's dominion will grow large enough to finally touch the empire of another intelligent race. Just to quickly summarize, the Cluster series hypothesizes that there are not very many intelligent races out there, but they all have the potential to become spacefaring people. As their domain grows, they form spheres of influence with thousands of colony worlds. Eventually, they start to bump up against each other, allowing them to meet at last. I can go into more detail about this when I choose Cluster for a future episode. Uh, It's interesting to think that by the time mankind encounters another race, we might all have been transformed into something like the Chose. Sci-fi books often imagine alien races to be either very nearly humanoid, like us, or extremely different. In the latter scenario, the Chose might fit right in. And that's it for this episode. What do you think of the length of our summaries and discussions? Too long? Too short? Just right? I hope you liked it, because I've been having a great month. I just went to the biannual used book sale at the fairgrounds here in Des Moines, Iowa. They hold it every spring and fall, and I look forward to it for months in advance. Hundreds of volunteers help make it happen, and all the profits go to Planned Parenthood to help people stay in control of their own family planning. Uh, This is not sponsored. I just believe in supporting people who need it. And considering the book we just read, uh, population control is important. (laughs) There are always a couple tables uh, dedicated to science fiction and fantasy books at the book sale. Um, I spend at least three hours there taking pictures for my Instagram, deciding which ones I have to own, uh, and just enjoying myself. Uh, You can learn more at PlannedParenthoodBookSale.com. While we wait for the next book sale, check out my Instagram, at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A-B-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y, to see the rest of my collection and let me know what books you are never going to read. Are you interested in sci-fi, fantasy, classics, children's books, or covers that stop you in your tracks? Would you like to hear about old graphic novel series or even movies? I look forward to hearing from you. Till next time, bye-bye, Earthlings!